Good morning. Like David said, my name is Stevie, and I work with our students here at Grace City, like most of you know. And uh, before we get started, just one quick announcement, because I want to throw us out there this week, because next week we're going to start having a lot of announcements with Easter and everything. But just for you to put on your calendar, on April the 7th, we're going to have our spring student fundraiser for camp. And so we did the pancakes back in December, and it was a great time. A lot of you came out, so that was awesome. But on April the 7th, right after church, do not make plans for lunch, because the students will be in the back selling uh, plates of jambalaya. And it's going to be awesome. So the students and Michael Wimley are going to be pre- preparing that. And so the plates will be $8. So don't want to miss out on that. So if you see some students, uh, you can buy tickets from them or you can buy them that day. So don't make lunch plans for April the 7th. So this morning we'll be in the book of Numbers, chapter 23. If you want to go ahead and flip to there, because we've been in the gospel project the last few months and it's been incredible. And this morning we're really looking into to God and how good God is, and how we should respond to God's goodness. And one of the first things that came to my mind was, one of my favorite books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis and his Chronicles of Narnia. Most of y'all have probably have heard of that or read it, and it's one of my favorite series. And if you're unfamiliar, in the Chronicles of Narnia, and specifically The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's four siblings, and they stumble upon this magical land of Narnia while in the wardrobe. Uh, and And... And so they go into Narnia, which is controlled by the evil white witch that will soon be redeemed by the lion named Aslan. And Aslan, is a, C.S. Lewis uses an allegory for Christ. He represents Christ and Christ's redemption in our own life. So it's just a, it's a beautiful novel. And, but one of my favorite quotes uh, is in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and it applies very well today. And that, that quote is, comes from Susan, one of the siblings, is asking about Aslan. And she's starting to learn about who Aslan is. And so that's where we pick up, and Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I'm rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. And God is good, right? God is so good to us as his people time and time again. And if we believe that today, then that should impact our lives. There's a question in the Gospel Project this week. If you're in a community group, you'll be going through this tonight and, uh, or this week. And if you're not in a community group, I highly suggest it because going through the Gospel Project in community groups has been an incredible time of growth in my own life and breaking down what we go through each and every Sunday morning. But there's a question in the Gospel Project this week that I kind of reworded a little bit for this message. But the question goes like this. How should... For us, how should knowing that God is unchanging and good to his children encourage us to trust him more and to live more faithfully? So I'll ask it again. How should knowing that God is unchanging and that he is good to us, his children, encourage us, his children, to live more faithfully and to follow him? And so this question, if if you do believe that God is unchanging, that his word tells us the truth of him, that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that he loves us, his children, and he's good to us, then that should impact our lives. It should impact how we, how we interact with God, but it should, also impact, it should also impact how we interact with each other. Because if we believe that God is good, and he's unchanging, and that he loves us, and he has a perfect plan, then that's going to creep in to every crevice of our lives, and that everything is affected. Our relationships, our, our work, our, our jobs, our, our church life, our, our family life. If we believe that God is unchanging and good to his people, that should change us. Change how we live our lives. 
And we see that here in the book of Numbers. And a little backstory here, the, the Israelites who God has brought out of slavery in Egypt, they've been in the, in the wilderness for 40 years waiting on God to allow them to enter the promised land that he promised Abraham, that he promised Moses, and all of God's people he promised. So last week we were kind of covering the snakes uh, and on the serpent. They got bit by the snake and Moses rose up the bronze serpent, which would have been very appropriate for St. Patrick's Day because if you know anything about St. Patrick, it's supposedly he, uh, he rid all of Ireland of the snakes. And uh, so it would have been good for today. And, uh, but it's not. It was last week. And, uh, and it's green, and God covers all of Jackson in green with pollen on St. Patrick's Day, which is awesome. But so they're, they're in the wilderness, and, and they're kind of, you know, going back and forth and being disobedient to God. And they come back and ask for forgiveness and all this. And so now, where we pick up in Numbers 23, they're on the cusp of the promised land. They can literally see the promised land. It's right across the Jordan River, and they're in the land of Moab. And in the land of Moab, there's a king named Balak. And Balak has heard about the Israelites. He's heard about what God has done on their behalf and all the, the enemies they've defeated, how God brought them out of Egypt. And so, if you can imagine, Balak is a little scared. Like, they're coming in his territory, in his land, and about to take him over. And so, Balak forms a plan. There's a sorcerer named Balaam that, that Balak will kind of send for. He'll send his messengers for to Balaam, who just kind of is this mystic oracle giver guy and, uh, I don't know, terror card reader, palm reader, whatever he does, like all the people in New Orleans. Uh, and and uh, not all the people in New Orleans, that's vague, uh, in the French Quarter. But so he sends for this guy, Balaam, and he sends his messengers, and they get to Balaam, and Balaam's like, okay, let me, let me pray to their God and see what he would have me say. And, and God comes to Balaam, and, and God says, no, like, these are my people, they're blessed, like, you, you cannot curse them. And so Balaam tells Balak's messengers. They come back again, ask him again, come. Like, he will give you all the silver, all the gold that you can imagine. And so Balaam prays to God again. And God says, go, but only say, only speak what I give you to speak. And so he goes, and there's a kind of an interesting story on the way that his donkey, he's riding his donkey on the way to Moab. And uh, the donkey sees this angel of the Lord in front of him and the donkey like swerves he's like nope not for me right and uh and Balaam literally like whips his donkey to try to get him back on the path and they go again into like a small area and he sees the angel again and and, uh, the angel of the Lord and he swerves off again and does it three times and each time Balaam just beats him here and Peter probably have a fit with this verse but he he beats him and then finally in a very interesting a scenario, God opens the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey looks up at Balaam and says, why are you hitting me? Like, that plot twist, right? That's crazy. And, uh, and literally then Balaam's eyes were opened to the presence there in front, and God told him once again, like, go and only speak what I tell you to speak. So what we pick up in Numbers 23 is they've kind of prepared the first oracle. So, so Balak wants Balaam to curse Israel, so he comes. He's told them he can't, but he's trying. So Balak is just holding out some hope. So they kind of make these like seven different altars and all this, kind of prepare, uh, prepare this to happen. So that's what we're going to pick up in verse 27. I'm mean, excuse me, in verse 7 in chapter 23 is part of Balaam's first oracle that he gives. Then Balaam uttered his oracle. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? From the rocky peak, how can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks I see them. From the heights I view them. 
I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and may my end be like theirs. So he looks out and and Balak is hoping somehow that, that Balaam will curse these people to weaken them so he can defeat them. And God does not allow Balaam to curse his people. All Balaam can do is pronounce um, a prophecy, pronounce blessing on to God's people because God has blessed them. And this probably doesn't surprise you if you know what God has continued to do up until this point. Because think about it. God brought them out of slavery from Egypt. God parted the Red Sea so they could cross over on dry land. He provided a pillar of fire by, by night and a pillar of cloud by day to, to protect them as they went through the wilderness. He gave them manna to eat and water to drink. And time and time again, he provided for his people. Because God can be trusted. We know he's good and we can follow him today because he can be trusted because he has kept his promises to his people. Time and time and time again, God has kept his promises to his people in spite, in the face of their disobedience. Because time and time again, the Israelites look up to God and shake their fists and say what he's given them, what he's blessed them with isn't good enough. They even say multiple times it would have been better for them to die as slaves in Egypt than to be here in the wilderness. But yet God's continually faithful to his people, continually to keep his promises. And what promise am I talking about? What's the promise to Abraham? Well, we covered this in the Gospel Project. That Abraham was this old dude that had no kids, was from this far land that God came and told him, go to a land that I will show you, like no GPS, no nothing, just go to where I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your descendants and bless all the nations. Like he's old, didn't have any kids. It was a crazy, crazy thing that God told, promised Abraham. But we see over time and time again, God's keeping his promise to Abraham. In the book of Genesis chapter 13, starting in verse 14, it says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. So here in Numbers 23 in in Balaam's Balaam's blessing of Israel, this just rings back to Genesis 13. Everything that Balaam is saying. He looks out over the rocky peaks and he sees God's people on the cusp of the promised land. God was about to give his people this land that he had promised them. They had been walking around for 40 years waiting to find that that Abraham left everything that he knew to come to this, this place that he had no clue where it would be or what it would be. And here they are. They can see it. It's right there. God's keeping his promises to Abraham. And not only that, I mean, look at verse 10. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? That rings almost exactly like Genesis 13. He says, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. That the people of Israel had grown. God had blessed them and grown them. In fact, we know, thanks to the book of Numbers, that it gets his name because they, they take sen- two censuses census in the book. And scholars will say it only counts fighting age men, but scholars would say the total amount of Israelites would be at least over 2 million people, at least, probably more. So God had brought these slaves out of Egypt and blessed them, and now there's over 2 million of them waiting on the cusp of the promised land that God was leading them to. 
That's a crazy amount of people we see God's blessing and God being faithful to his promises here. That literally to, and how they would encamp would be like tribe, 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 like a, kind of like a plus sign. And in order to, for the amount of land that it would take for this many people to be encamped, uh, some scholars say it would be at least a square of three miles by three miles. Like that's huge. That Balaam is looking out over these people and he sees just as far as his eyes can see just people that God has brought from nowhere and made them more numerable than the dust of the earth. That literally, that's like from here to the target on county line. Like, that's pretty far. Like, he's looking out and seeing all these blessings, God's promises being fulfilled in the people of Israel. God can be trusted because he keeps his promises to his people. He's unchanging. What he says he's going to do, he's going to do. And he does it time and time again. He's doing that here. And Balaam could not do anything else but utter these, these blessings and, and see what God had done through Israel. And not only can God be trusted because he keeps his promises, but what we also see here is that he works on behalf of his people. God continues to bless and work on behalf of the, his children, the people that he loved, like me and you. If you look over in, chapter, in the end of chapter 23, Balak is, is now, you know, he's not giving up. It's like, I brought Balaam all the way here, sent my messengers, he's come here, and the first oracle, well, that was a failure. He didn't do it. So now, it's kind of funny, Balak is, is not giving up. He's, he's pretty desperate. So verse 27 of chapter 23 says, Then Balak said to Balaam, Come, let me take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God to let you curse them for me from there. And Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, overlooking the wasteland. So he's like, oh, you couldn't, you couldn't curse them over here? Let's try over here. Maybe there's better reception over here. All right, let's try this. And you can just see the desperateness of Balak here. He knows what's about to happen. He knows God is going to crush him through the Israelites and that he is so desperate. And he's just like, okay, let's, let's move. Let's try it again over here. But it doesn't work because God is faithful and God blesses his people. So look at verse, in chapter 24, starting in verse 1. So Balak tries again. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to sorcery as at other times, but turned his face toward the desert. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came upon him, and he uttered his oracle. So Balaam looks out and sees all of God's people, and he can't curse them. How can he curse God's people whom God has blessed? He can't. He sees the millions of people and all he can do is pronounce blessing after blessing on these people. We see God working on behalf of his people. Time and time again, whether it's providing manna in the desert, providing water, providing shade with the cloud, providing warmth and light with the pillar of fire, parting the Red Sea. Time and time again, God provided and was working on behalf of his people. But one interesting thing we see here. In this passage is that this is kind of one of the first that the whole time God is working here, the whole time God is doing something miraculous where there's a foreign king trying to, to conquer, trying to curse God's people. There's a foreign king who is doing, using every single resource at his disposal to curse God's people and defeat them. At the very time, God, he's doing everything he can. And yet, where are the Israelites? They're in their camp. Most likely, they're probably complaining about the manna at this point. Like, they're just, they're just dumb to the world. Like, they don't know what God is doing in this moment. 
They don't know how much God is working and protecting them and keeping his promises to them. They don't know that. They're ignorant to that. They're just off in their own world. They're probably just ready to be there in the promised land. When's he going to let us cross the Jordan? Like, when's this going to happen? I'm sick and tired of eating this plain manna. Like, give me some, some milk and honey. Like, they're probably complaining. And yet God is doing so much at this very moment on their behalf. And they're completely unaware. I feel like this happens so many times in our own lives. Because the truth is that just because we don't feel that God is at work or we don't see God at work does not mean he's not working. Because he's constantly working on behalf of his people. He's constantly bringing all things together for our good who are called according to his purpose. He's constantly working on our behalf. And the sad part is that we don't see it or acknowledge it most of the time. We get down and we get so focused on what's right in front of us, what we're struggling with or going through the work day or just problems with family or, or where it may be. And, and we lose sight on what God is doing. And we, we, we rationalize that because we don't feel that God is doing something, we don't feel like God is close to us, then he must not be. Then he must not be working. He must not be doing anything. He must be far off and distant. And I don't know what the Israelites were actually feeling at this moment, but yet at the, whatever they were doing at that very moment, God was doing some incredible things for them to protect them, to keep them out of harm's way, and they were clueless to it. God works despite whether we recognize it or not, whether we realize it or not. He is constantly working on our behalf. When I was a senior in high school, uh, I lived in Philadelphia, and uh, there was a point where my dad all of a sudden kind of came to me and, and told me we were moving, that he wanted to move back to Charleston, Mississippi, where we were originally from. And I was absolutely devastated, as you can imagine. I mean, I was a senior. I was playing you know, football, sports, had a girlfriend, had all these friends. I was involved in my youth group, and I did not want to go. I was absolutely devastated. I was angry, frustrated, sad, all the emotions. And I just, I was like, no, like, this can't happen. Like, I don't, I don't want to move. And then about two or three days later, my dad came to me and said, okay, we're staying. Like, that's all he said. Like, that's all I knew. And I was just relieved. I was like, okay, cool. Like, unpack my bags. I'm staying. Let all my friends know. And it was incredible. It was awesome. So thankful that I was able to stay. But about last year, I learned something new about that situation that I did not know. And apparently, the reason why my dad wanted to move was because that he couldn't afford his rent anymore. He couldn't pay to stay, and so he was about to go back to his home, go back to his friends, and, and he was going to take me with him. And I didn't know that. And apparently the reason that we stayed was because one of my uncles stepped in and paid for my dad's rent until I graduated high school so that I could stay there. I had no clue until seven, seven years later, eight years later, I learned that. And, I mean, you can imagine just emotions that, like, came over me in that moment to see just how much like this uncle loves me and, and, uh, and seeing and he's a godly man and seeing like how much God put on his heart to work and stuff because that's a crazy thing to do and I'm so thankful that God worked in that moment on my behalf the thing is in the moment I didn't know I was so unaware I didn't know really what happened until seven eight years later but God does that in our lives every single day we don't see it. I was blessed to finally recognize it, you know, years later. Most of us don't see what God's doing most of the time on our behalf. He's protecting us, keeping us safe. Think about how many drunk drivers have been pulled over that could have been in your lane one night. 
right? Just all the blessings God has given us, all the diseases, all the trouble God has kept us from. And yet all we focus on is the, the small bad things, right? All we focus on is what we think God missed. And we use that to rationalize, well, God must be far off. God must not care about me. God must not be at work. He, he might not even be real. And yet he's constantly working on behalf of his children because he loves us. He's unchanging and he's good to his children. And so we have to, to discipline ourselves to know that even when it doesn't feel right, even when our feelings aren't leading us toward God, we have to rationalize and say, no, but I know he's working. I know he's good despite what I feel because that's what his word tells me. And if he did it then, he's going to do it now because he's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Time and time again, God is working in, on behalf of us and we don't even realize it. So it's in those moments where it's tough to trust. It's in those moments where it's tough to have faith that we have to stand on his promises, not when it feels right. We can't trust our feelings. The Bible says the heart is deceitful beyond all measure. So we have to discipline ourselves to know that I know that God's working. I mean, I can see it, but I'm going to trust him in this moment because I trust he's good. I trust he's working all things together for my good. And God was doing that right now with his people. While they were sitting there in their camp wanting to get to the promised land, and God is working through Balaam and working despite Balak's effort to curse his people. God was still working. Then over later in verse 24, we get to Balaam's fourth oracle. So he, Balak is trying time and time again. He's desperate. In his fourth oracle, it reads like this in Numbers 24, verse 17. Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheath. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. God tells Balaam, and Balaam speaks these truths, that he's going to raise up a king out of Jacob, out of Israel. And I can just picture, like, Balak's response at this time, right? Like, he's using all his resources to, like, curse these people. And all of a sudden, Balaam's like, actually, the king's going to rise up out of them and they're going to crush you. <laughs> uh, shouldn't have brought you here after all, right? Like, that was a mistake. I just, just don't want to hear that. But it's true. God would raise up, in fact, he would raise up multiple kings out of Israel. He would raise up plenty of kings. But the problem was that none of these kings were good. They did, some of them did some good things. King David did a lot of great things. But each one of them failed God and failed God's people a few times. At least a few times. Most multiple, multiple times. There was no perfect king. But God would raise up a perfect king out of Jacob. A scepter would rise out of Israel that would crush all the heads of the enemies. And that when Jesus was born in that manger and the star of David was there and he was proclaiming that a, a scepter is coming, a king has come, a true king, the king, the good king, right, was coming. And that he lived the perfect life that we couldn't. He bore our sin, our wrath that we deserve on that cross and that he was the perfect king that did everything that we couldn't and brought his people to salvation. That we can trust God because he brings his people salvation. He has provided a way for us to be in communion, to be in relationship with him. He's the ultimate king. And through all the trials, through all the, the trouble that his people has gone through, he has been constant there providing a way for salvation for his people. 
and that he would lead Israelite, the Israelites into the promised land. He would provide for them and all the blessings and as long as they would stay faithful to him. And sadly for the Israelites, the sight of God's faithfulness and the thought of him being unchanging and good to his people, that didn't lead them to worship. It didn't lead them to faithfulness. But it should. So the question I asked at the beginning, how should knowing that God is unchanging and good to his children encourage us to, to trust him and, and to follow him? It should 100% lead us on our knees to worship him. The fact that this God is the same, I can trust him, and he's good to me, even when it doesn't look like it, that I can still trust him and live faithfully, and that impacts every single area of our life that we walk through. And they provided the ultimate way. He provided the ultimate blessing. That the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? While we were on the other side, while we, just like the Israelites, were shaking our fist at God, and we still do at times. He's still providing a way for us to be in his family, to be children of God. Not because of us, because of his goodness, his faithfulness. That's why he does it, because he is good. In the book of Romans, Paul wrote this letter, and he talks about this very, very truth in the book of Romans. One of my favorite passages. We'll pick up in verse 31 of chapter 8. Paul writes, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul lays it all out. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. That he has provided a way for nothing to be in the way that we are directly can walk to him, can accept his blessing on our lives and surrender and follow him and nothing can stand in the way. Which doesn't mean none of these things aren't going to happen. I mean, Paul says right before this that all things in chapter 8 work together for our good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But this passage, Paul says that these things won't keep us from the love of God. They won't separate us from the love of God. It doesn't mean that sword won't come. It doesn't mean that famine or nakedness won't come. But it means it won't separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. So when these things come, when trials come, when it becomes hard to trust in him, we can plant our, our lives in the truth that God is who he says he is. He's unchanging and he, he wants what's best for us and he's provided what's best for us in Christ. And that we can surrender to his will, we can surrender and trust him, and that leads us to live faithfully. It's not easy, it's not a three-step process or a seven-step process, but it's when we put in our minds on Christ and what he's done for us, it puts everything here in the horizontal in perspective. That whatever we're going through, 
whatever we're struggling with, it doesn't mean God is, is far off. It doesn't mean God isn't working. But in those moments, it should, instead of drawing us away from him, it should draw us directly to him. Because he is the one that's provided everything that we need in salvation, in ultimate salvation that not only on this place, but in eternal salvation when Christ will come back as the triumphant king. That God's provided all this in Christ Jesus. So when we have trouble in the workplace, when it becomes difficult, we don't want to go to work or we're fighting with our coworkers or we lose our job or maybe it's trouble in our marriages. Maybe it's trouble with pregnancy. Maybe it's just a loved one that we lost. Maybe it's just a hard life. We got dealt a bad hand. It's in those moments that we look to him. Instead of looking at what's present, instead of looking at what's around us and the troubles that surround us, we look to him who is unchanging, who is working on behalf of his people, who loves us. And that despite the present reality, there is an eternal gift coming in that it, it affects the right now when we have that perspective. That we can face the famine, we can face the nakedness, we can face the sword, we can face everything that we're struggling with right now. It doesn't mean it's easy, it doesn't mean we're just going to be able to just ignore it. But he's walking with us along the whole entire time and he's, and he's telling us his truths. You're my child, I love you, I've saved you. It's just temporary, all this. And that we focus on him in those moments and it affects our present realities. And that's, that's the whole point. It's not a magic formula. It's not that we just say a prayer and, and all of our troubles go away. But it's in those troubles we can look to him. Instead of we look so far to other places. We look everywhere except God most of the time. And we don't even realize it. We want satisfaction. We want our pain to go away. We want our troubles to go away. And so we, we think all these other things will help when the only cure is God himself. He doesn't take it away all the time. But he comes right with us. And that just like he was with the Israelites, working on their behalf, even through their disobedience, even through their failures, God was working on their behalf. So God's unchanging goodness and love for us leads us back to him each and every time. Even when we drift away, leads us back and back to him. So as we leave here today, I want us to leave knowing that God is for us. He's fighting for you, even when you don't know it. God is still fighting for you. And he desires our worship. He desires our commitment to follow him despite what's going on beside us, to follow him. And he'll lead us to the path of righteousness and truth and ultimately salvation through him. Because he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Let's pray.